All right, so um, again, for those who may have joined late, my name is Walt Opie. I'm happy to be with you tonight. James and Eve are both teaching a retreat at Spear Rock right now. Um, and the topic tonight of my talk is craving and the end of craving. It's uh, a topic that's been kind of near and dear to my heart, you might say, because I'm a recovering alcoholic addict, so it's been kind of a, something I've had to come to terms with, working with craving in different forms, and I've always been blown away by how brilliant the Buddha was 25, 2600 years ago, uh, and you know, around this topic, and um, I did some research, I am not a neuroscientist or anything, but um, having done some research, which I'm going to talk about a little uh, it turns out, it seems to really turn out that modern neuroscience just completely reinforces everything the Buddha was saying about, you know, how craving causes suffering, the Four Noble Truths. The First Noble Truth, uh, you know, there is suffering. The Second Noble Truth, the cause of the suffering is craving. This is the short version. Third Noble Truth is um, there is an end to craving which um, is kind of the end of the path in Buddhism, the Nibbana, the end of craving. And then the fourth noble truth is the path leading to the end of craving, the, the, eight, the noble eightfold path, um, which uh, I won't list the whole thing, but you know, includes things like right mindfulness, right concentration, right view. So, um, right intention. So, one modern neuroscientist, Kent Barrage, uh, says desire is what the brain does best. Desire is what the brain does best. And, um, and a lot of Buddhist teachings uh, point to how we need to learn how to work with this. Um, Ajahn Sumedho, who's a uh, very senior teacher in the Ajahn Chah Thai forest lineage. He's in his 80s now, um, originally from Seattle. He said that um, we, we're never going to get rid of desire or craving, but we do need to become experts at desire and see it when it arises and learn how to work with it when it arises. And for me, this practice, uh, mindfulness, insight, meditation, has been the best solution that I've found to really working with this. Um, but it takes work. It's not, I don't want to over simplify it. Um, one of my other favorite teachers is Sayadaw Utejan Nia, and he says, whatever you think, whatever you say, whatever you do, craving is always pushing you, motivating you. There's always wanting. It is because of this wanting that the mind suffers, becomes tense and dissatisfied. There's always wanting. And it's really interesting because that's exactly what that modern neuroscientist was it talks about, is this wanting in the mind. Um, and one thing that struck me is when the, uh, in the Dhammapada, there's a phrase, it's sort of like, um, what the Buddha supposedly said after his, immediately after his awakening, 
and you, I'm sure you've probably heard this, house builder, you have been seen. You will not build a house again. All the rafters are broken, the ridge pole destroyed. Realized is the unconditioned, achieved is the end of craving. And I just, that has always kind of got my attention that the kind of ultimate goal here is the end of craving. Um, so I've just been trying to explore what that really means. Um, I think we can definitely have tastes of the end of craving in our, you know, for this moment. Like in other words, we may not get to the permanent end of craving, but we can have these moments where we're not really craving anything. And uh, it's important to really be present for those and take that in and see what that's like. Um, so there's another aspect of this, I think, which is um, another quote in the Dhammapada says, you probably heard this too, if by giving up a lesser happiness for a greater happiness could be found, a wise person would renounce the lesser for the sake of the greater. So in some ways we often end up um, you know, it feels like we're giving up, to give up craving on some level feels like giving up pleasure, right? <laughs> but it's, it's not really exactly true, but that's kind of how it can feel. So I find that to be um, some wisdom that's worth remembering. And then the point being is that we, with this practice, we start to learn, we start to value something other than these, what the Buddha might have called cheap sense pleasures, you know. <laughs> Um, whatever your favorite thing is. And that's not to say that we can't enjoy those at all, but that we, we stop giving them the kind of um, emphasis in our lives that we might have in the past. Um, but we do it out of wisdom and out of seeing that it's going to make actually bring us greater happiness to, um, to move in that direction towards some form of renunciation often from some of these sense pleasures that the Buddha, uh, as I've read into the suttas, the Buddha was off, always talking about the kind of you know, watch out for sense pleasure kind of thing. <laughs> so, um, and the word uh, for craving that you may have heard in uh, Pali, the ancient Indian language, P-A-L-I, the word for craving is tanha, T-A-N-H-A, which literally means drought or thirst. And figuratively, it means craving, hunger for, excitement, or the fever of unsatisfied longing. The fever of unsatisfied longing. I've always thought that was really interesting. Um, and it's said to be the opposite of peace of mind. So that tells us something right there, right? <laughs> So we're, when we're caught in a craving, um, you know, the fever of unsatisfied longing, then obviously we don't have peace of mind. And um, like I said, this happens on uh, lots of different levels. I had something I think I might read from uh, Jack Kornfield's book, um, The Wise Heart, where he... Uh, Kind of talks about how we can learn with mindfulness to work with these things. He says, um, 
Beginning meditators are shocked by the number of desires that arise in one sitting. So in a way, this talk, I guess, is an invitation to just start to see how this is operating in, in your life. You know, don't take my word for it. Check it out. <laughs> but um, he says there are desires for a quiet mind, for our back pain to go away, for the bell that ends the sitting to ring. And in between these desires are hundreds of other desires, hoping for a tasty lunch, for a phone call to our loved one, for a nap, for the rain to stop so we can go for a walk, for the sun's warmth, for success when we go back to work. Um, and then he says, with mindfulness, we can witness the arising and passing of desire. We can allow the body sensations, the feeling states, and the stories of desire to be graciously received without judgment. When desire is met mindfully, the energy of desire will often intensify for a time and try to overcome us. And modern neuroscience is saying that's dopamine kicking in, uh, which is interesting. Um, so if we don't rush to fulfill the desire, but simply stay present, the discomfort will eventually pass. The dopamine will subside. <laughs> uh, then we can notice what follows. Usually a sense of ease, a peacefulness in body and mind, until desire arises once more a short time later. We can see this when we feel restless or uncomfortable toward the end of a sitting meditation. We feel the desire to move accompanied by bodily tension and frustration. Fervently, we hope the bell will ring. I'm imagining most of us can relate to this one. Uh, maybe not every time. So then as soon as it does, the bell rings, without our making a single movement, a dramatic change comes over us. The body relaxes and the tension disappears. The state of struggle is replaced by ease. Why is this so, since we have not done anything different? It's simple. With the ringing of the bell, the desire has ended, and without desire, the mind and heart are at peace. So that's, you know, on a small scale how we can experience this sort of the end of desire, at least in that moment. <laughs> but um, I've just found it to be a really um, fruitful exploration to kind of look at how desire or craving uh, are operating in my life constantly. And there's um, something called feeling tone, you know, in the Buddha's teachings, Vedana, is the poly uh, and it has to do with how whatever happens at any of the six sense doors we immediately uh, experience it as either pleasant um, unpleasant or painful or neutral right it's and if it's if it's pleasant we that's when the desire arises right we it's like oh I want more of that that was nice so that kind of triggers a certain level of desire and then if it's um, painful or unpleasant, we really don't like it. So we have a strong craving for it to go away usually. So that's a different type of desire, but it's still a form of desire where we want that to go away. We don't want that unpleasant or painful experience. And then if it's neutral, we just kind of gloss over it and we don't really, we tend to not notice it or we tend to want something more exciting to be happening. So. 
often uh, like where if maybe you're at your computer and um, you're in a meeting <laughs> and suddenly there's a lull and you get a little bored at the meeting do you ever check your email <laughs> you know that's the, the moment where we suddenly were like oh maybe I'll see if anybody liked my post on Instagram or whatever it is so um, you know because we want that dopamine hit is what I'm starting to learn from neuroscience so we're really kind of driven by this subtle forms of craving all the time and um, the beautiful thing, that according to the teachings of the Buddha, is that if we can start to tune into that feeling tone at that level of, oh, well, that was pleasant, or even though this is kind of really neutral right now <laughs> to the point of I'm getting bored, we don't have to get caught in the craving for it to be different than it is. In other words, even if it's pleasant, we could just say, oh, this is pleasant without necessarily getting caught in this strong desire for more but we have to be present to to win as the apparently they say in Vegas or whatever we have to be there has to be some level of um, mindfulness operating to really see this so that's why I said it's sort of um, I'm, I don't want to pretend that this is too simple because it requires a really committed mindfulness practice to start to really tune into all this to the point where we can have that freedom in the moment. But um, I do feel that it's very possible um, for us to cultivate this. And certainly a daily meditation practice is helpful. Um, and going on retreat periodically and exploring this is really helpful. Um, so let's see. Trying to figure out where to go next. Um, well, there was a book that came out called The Biology of Desire by Mark Lewis a few years ago. And he kind of talked about this in the terms of addiction, um, but it helps us kind of understand how it works. Um, he said, um, a couple of researchers, Kent Barrage and Terry Robinson, provided two major upgrades to the neuro, neuroscience of addiction. The first was a map of the brain geography of wanting versus liking. What they found is that most of the uh, striatum, which is a large complex structure in the brain, um, is in the business of wanting, and only a small area produces the sensation of liking. It seems that evolution devoted a lot more real estate to desire than to the end state, pleasure or relief it sometimes achieves. And their second contribution, but I think that's important to realize that the, the brain, uh, there's a lot more real estate in the brain for wanting than there is for actually enjoying, like once we get the thing that we were wanting so badly. If you notice, it tends to be very fleeting how much we really get a lot of pleasure out of it. Even like say ice cream, not to trigger anybody, but if uh, even with something like that, it, we get very excited about it, and then the first couple bites are pretty, pretty great, right? And then we sort of start to gloss over it pretty fast, right? We don't tend to actually. Um, the brain sort of loses interest in it pretty quickly, and this explains why. Um, and the 
Kent Barrage and Terry Robinson, their second contribution was a formula for the growth of desire for specific goals um, with the rise of addiction, a formula that describes how drugs and sex and food and other attractive things end up triggering impulsive behavior. Their work was mostly done with rats and mice, but our brains apparently aren't much different when it comes to the, the accumbens, certain part of the brain. The more their rodents were exposed to cues that predicted getting addictive drugs or even sugar, the more those cues commandeered the accumbens. The cue, the stimulus, whether it was a green light or a horizontal stripe, became, became increasingly likely to direct the animal's attention and behavior toward the reward. Um, so desire deserves a lot of respect, he, he writes, Mark Lewis, as does the neural terrain bequeathed to it by evolution. Um, and then pleasure, on the other hand, is achieved by a relatively small segment of the brain, as we said, that appears to include a small portion of the striatum and a very different chemical recipe. So desire is really the big wheel in all of our goal-oriented goal activities, and addiction is no exception. Barrage was the first to argue that addiction is about wanting, not liking, desire, not pleasure. Pleasure is great for triggering desire, I want more. But once no. the con connection is made, we turn our attention almost exclusively to desire. Okay. Um, sorry, did somebody have something? Please mute if you... Um, okay. So um, I just... I hope this is interesting to you all. Um, I've found it really fascinating to understand just how much we are wired for desire as to, to uh, have a rhyme. <laughs> and um, so then Joseph Goldstein, one of my favorite teachers, um, talks about how we can learn to work with this more and he says, we come to realize that nothing can be counted on to bring lasting fulfillment precisely because nothing lasts. So one, one way that in Buddhist teachings we combat getting caught in desire all the time is realizing how impermanent everything is. So we can start to see that even if we get whatever we're desiring in this moment, it's really not going to last all that long or be all that satisfying if we're really honest about it. And... Um, so Joseph said, continues, as we reflect on the drawbacks of sense pleasures and the rewards of renunciation, we often find difficulty even when we just hear the word renunciation. But a more accurate and liberating understanding of renunciation would be as the experience of non-addiction. I love that. We all know the suffering bound up with addictions, whatever they might be. We might be addicted in one way or another to food, drugs, sex, alcohol, or perhaps more unnoticed to work, power, recognition, wealth, or even comfort. We become addicted not only to the gratification of our wants, but also to the mental habit of wanting itself. And that's another thing, that this wanting takes up a lot of our time. So I was on a um, six-week retreat at IMS this past fall, and it was interesting. Um, 
I mean, I was in a pretty, you know, after took a while, but, you know, I got fairly concentrated and was really, you know, cooking in my retreat. And, uh, but one thing I noticed was, and I kind of alluded to this during the meditation tonight, was that what would disrupt my meditation often while sitting there meditating would be a thought of like planning a future pleasant experience. So for example, I um, knew that I had a free night right after the retreat in the Boston area. (laughs) And so I would like ultimately like where I was going to be alone and could kind of do whatever I wanted for a night. And uh, my mind kept wanting to plan this great night, you know, rather than really being present in my meditation on the retreat, which was, you know, actually bringing a lot of happiness and peace. But what my mind wanted to do was plan this future pleasant experience, right? And so, um, and this may not be how all of you are, I don't know, but um, all I can share is my own experience. Um, but, uh, But it was really helpful to start to notice that. And then I could just say, oh, planning a future pleasant experience. And it became easier and easier to let it go. Um, And what's also interesting is I did, of course, because it kept coming up, I did plan multiple things that I thought I would want to do on that big night. And then all I actually ended up doing was sitting at home reading a book, (laughs) a Dharma book. (laughs) And it was a perfectly lovely evening. But, you know, I was going to go to a movie, go to my favorite Japanese restaurant, do all this stuff. Didn't end up doing any of it. So that's the other thing. Like, you know, we just get caught in I, I uh, in these kind of pursuits, and they really aren't doing us a whole lot of good. <laughs> um, so we just, and we, we keep looking, you know, um, there's a lot of emphasis on this impermanence, uh, because if we can really tune into that, then we just start to become disenchanted, um, you know, with whatever the thing is that we're getting excited about. When we can think it through with wisdom in the moment, thanks to the teachings of the Buddha, then we can start to realize that even if that were to happen, it's, gonna, it's not going to last that long. I mean, uh, so my daughter had never had cotton candy before, and uh, she's pretty young. And um, we decided we were going to go to the Santa Cruz Boardwalk recently, <laughs> and we said you can have cotton candy at the Boardwalk because it just seemed like the thing you would do at the Boardwalk and be like, that's the only time you get to have. But it was amazing how much we talked about cotton candy. Like she just kept bringing up cotton candy, cotton candy. And then we finally got there, and yes, we got her cotton candy. Um, and I will say she ate almost all of it, which seemed kind of gross to me. I wanted, I kept trying to get her to like throw it away or whatever, but she she wanted to just keep eating it away. But uh, you know, then once it was over, it's like no nobody mentioned cotton candy again. It was just gone. Um, so I don't know. These things are very fleeting. It really doesn't last that long. Um, it, we spent a lot more time talking about the cotton candy than it actually than it ever took her to eat it and enjoy it, you know. So life is kind of like that. Um, and 
I am going to open it up and, and get some uh, comments and questions from you all, but I'll share a few more things here. Um, there's also this, um, this idea of the second arrow. The, well, there's a great um, sutta that you may have heard. The, I've never quite known how to pronounce it, Salatha Sutta. Um, and it's the Buddha says, an, un, an uninstructed worldling, O monks, experiences pleasant feelings, experiences painful feelings, and experiences neutral feelings. We talked about that. And a well-taught noble disciple likewise experiences those same feelings. Now, what's the difference? What's the distinction uh, that exists between the well-taught noble disciple and an untaught worldling? When an un uninstructed worldling, which is kind of a weird term, but anyway, is touched by a painful bodily feeling, um, he or she worries and grieves, laments, beats their breast, weeps, and is distraught. Um, they thus experience two kinds of feelings, a bodily and a mental feeling. It is, if, it is as if a man were pierced by a dart or an arrow following and following the first piercing, he is hit by a second dart. So that person will experience feelings caused by two darts. It is similar with an uninstructed worldling. When touched by a painful feeling, uh, he worries and grieves. He laments, beats his breast, weeps, and is distraught. So in that way, he experiences two kinds of feeling, a bodily and a mental. Um, Having been touched by that painful feeling, he re resists and resents it. Then in him who so resists that painful feeling, an underlying tendency of resistance against that painful feeling comes to underlie his mind. And under the impact of that painful feeling, he then proceeds to enjoy sensual happiness. So he pursues sensual pleasure. There's, this isn't the best translation. And why does he do so? Because an uninstructed worldling, this is the key, does not know of any other escape from painful feelings except the enjoyment of sensual pleasure. Um, so I think this is kind of fascinating that the Buddha pointed this out 2,500 years ago, that um, when we have a painful feeling, often the way we kind of try to deal with it is just to uh, gloss it over by reaching for something that's pleasurable, right? To help us kind of drown out the painful feeling. You know, whether that's, could be anything. I don't even I hesitate to name stuff, but certainly um, I've done this many times. And I do think that this led to my actual addiction with um, alcohol was um, that I didn't know how to deal with painful experiences. And so I, but I found that if I, drank heavily, it kind of at least made it go away temporarily. Um, so, um, and then that started a bad, you know, habit pattern. And uh, in the case, then the Buddha goes on to say, in the case of an instructed noble disciple, which is what we're trying to be, um, when this, when a person is touched by a painful feeling, they will not worry or grieve or lament. They will not 
beat their breast and weep, nor will they be distraught. It is one kind of feeling that they experience, a bodily one, but not a mental one. Um, it is as if a man were pierced by a dart, but was not hit by the second dart following the first one. So this person experiences the feelings caused by the single dart only. Um, and I've, I imagine, you know, this is something I really relate to because um, I can remember a time when whenever something bad would happen to me, I would spend a lot of time wishing this wasn't happening, right? Like this shouldn't be happening and really being upset that it happened at all rather than just accepting, oh, well, this is what's happening now. And I mean, I even had the perfect example of getting ready to go to the monastery and then taking a COVID test and finding out that I had COVID um, this morning and not, not what I wanted, you know, but um, it was really interesting to, uh, it's like, what did that do to your mind? <laughs> um, and all I can say is that I definitely was able to work with that a lot better today than I would have been before I had to, you know, develop this practice um, and, you know, learn these teachings from the, you know, teachers like James and uh, many others. So, yeah, I mean, maybe I'm, this might be the main point of my talk. I'm not sure. I need to keep going on and on about it. Um, but just this idea that as we start to be wiser around this, and I did have this um, quote from Ajahn Sachito in his book on the Paramis. He says, in fact, our craving is about something we don't have. Sexual, sexuality and food are not really the source of craving. The source is the not having. If giving something up encourages craving, why do it? Um, well, apart from enjoying simplicity, a big reason to renounce is in order to understand and thereby undo craving. What we are primarily giving up is this sense of absence, the feeling of I need, I want, I am incomplete without. That's what we're giving up. How does this absence become such a solid and pressing presence? The point is that when you look into craving, you realize that the whole is not a whole. It's a vortex of tangled, overstimulated energy based on the ephemeral fantasy of fulfillment. In other words, on ignorance. Uh, he goes on, but I think that's enough, but you get the idea that really all we're giving up is this, I, this feeling that um, I'm incomplete without blank, you know? <laughs> so um, just another encouragement to look at this from the Buddhist, Buddha's um, standpoint. And um, there's, you know, there, there was another phrase that I really like that Kent Barrage, the scientist I mentioned earlier, um, there's an article about him in this Intelligent Life magazine from 2015. It said um, Barrage has found the neuroanatomical basis um, for, you know, why we're caught by um, desire so much. And he said that we are 
hardwired to be insatiable wanting machines. Hardwired to be insatiable wanting machines, which is another interesting phrase. So um, it's I just find it to be helpful to know this and to understand that that's what I'm working with here. <laughs> and uh, so I need all the help I can get to work to counteract this, you know, insatiable wanting machine. And the best thing that I've found is meditation and mindfulness. Um, so thank you for listening. I think maybe I'll end the talk there. Um, but I do want to open it up and hear from you. <laughs> so thank you for your kind attention. Um, there's much more that could be said, but I feel like I've talked enough. <laughs> um, so I just want to see if there are any questions or comments. And uh, so it's um, floor is open. If you want to raise your hand, you know how to raise your hand. Um, forget where that is. Or maybe nobody has any thing. Yes, Louisa. Hi, um, thanks for this talk. It's a really fascinating topic to me. Um, and I don't have experience with addiction, although a lot of people around me do. Um, but one thing I've noticed with wanting is that sometimes I find myself wanting to want something. And I feel lost when I'm not wanting something, when I'm not angling or craving or planning towards or desiring. I, it, it's almost disconcerting. And I don't actually have a practice around that. I just kind of flounder a bit. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. But. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Um, well, the, um, Joseph Goldstein talks about catalog consciousness that we won't, uh, just reminds me of that, where, you know, we, we're not wanting anything in the moment, then we check our mail and we have a new catalog from some company we like. And so instantly we start flipping through the pages to, to looking for something to want, you know, something to want. And I just think we have that, a lot of us have that habit pattern that we're kind of, and I mean, you know, our culture is built on this. We, they want us to want, you know, um, so I don't think it's your fault, you know, <laughs> but I, I just think that what's powerful is that for me, the antidote has been mindfulness that if I'm, if I have that wherewithal in the moment, I could say, wait, what's going on here? Do I really need anything or am I just kind of wanting for the sake of wanting here? And that I can, I do now have the ability to stop and, you know, um, see that for what it is and let it go. But, um, but we're, like I said, and it tends to be, well, I mean, um, yeah, I just think it's very common. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, let's see. I, um, yes, Nathan. Hi, thank you for the talk and sharing. Um, how do you, is there such thing as a wise wanting or a wise desire and how does one separate between the two wise and unwise wanting? Yeah, that's a great question. I uh, meant to cover that a little bit. There's a, 
a Pali word, chanda, uh, which is sort of um, the more wholesome version of desire. There's tanha, which is kind of the compulsive craving, and then chanda is is kind of considered a positive type of desire, where it's we're desiring things that would be onward leading on the path, you know, that would um, towards an enlightenment or awakening. Um, so, and those tend to not be so sticky, first of all. So that's, you can sort of look at those. They, they don't tend to bring any kind of negative repercussions. Um, and they, they're very wholesome. And there's a whole, yeah, there's a lot more that we could be said, but is that good enough for now? <laughs> yeah, that is. Thank you. Great. Thanks for the question. Um, let's see. Somebody did post something in the chat. Um, how do I deal with craving for having a productive day? I would like to just relax and go about my day, but the productiv productivity aspect and craving bothers me all day long till I reach my goal at the end of the day. Any suggestions? Thanks. Um, well, they do talk, you know, a lot of my teachers talk about how we we put in our best effort and we let go of the results. And if we trust that we're doing our best uh, work, you know, doing as well as we can in the moment, then we kind of try to let go of worrying too much about the results. But I, um, so I do think that there's probably more going on there. In other words, it's like, I want to be seen as a really productive person by somebody else kind of thing. So there's usually more going on than meets the eye with something like that. Um, so the product and craving, yeah. And the other thing is, it's kind of like, does the craving help, help in any way? What's the craving doing? And, um, it does not sound like it would add a whole lot. So just seeing it with wisdom and uh, trying to let it go is, I guess, how I would try to work with that. Um, yeah, any other? Sorry, I don't have a more compelling response to that, but um, that's what comes to mind at the moment. Any other questions or comments? Yes, Fred. Hello. Yeah, I just wanted to thank you for the um, comprehensive look at craving from so many different angles. I, I really appreciate that. And um, um, I, I'm now craving ice cream. <laughs> so we'll see how I do with that when, when the evening's over. So thank you very much for a really nice talk. Yeah, thanks, Brett. Yeah, it's amazing. But see, just notice, because I think I mentioned ice cream once, right? And that's what you're referring to. But see, that's the power of the mind, right? <laughs> it doesn't take much to get us triggered. Um, and they're really, you know, we've, we were learning more and more about how dopamine is driving this. And there's even, I didn't quote it, but there was an article that I discovered kind of preparing for the talk. And it's called Anti-Dopamine Parenting can curb a kid's craving for screens or sweets. So they have tips on how to uh, anti-dopamine parent now, <laughs> which I just thought was interesting. 
So um, they said, wait five minutes is one of the top ones, um, which would be kind of like mindfulness. And in terms of the ice cream, it's not to say there's anything necessarily wrong with eating ice cream, but notice, you know, eat it mindfully and notice how long the pleasure of the ice cream really lasts. <laughs> Perhaps would be one way to work with it. Yeah, it, it rarely lasts as, uh, as long as the ice cream itself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, just tuning into the impermanence of these things has been helpful to me, as I mentioned earlier. Um, all right, any, any other questions or comments before we start to close up? But thanks for everybody's um, questions and comments. I always love hearing from you. Looks like uh, Joyce, you have your hand up. Hi, Joyce. Hi. Hi, hi Walt. Um, I just heard something new when you were talking about the second arrow and it has to do with the, the mental feelings that arise. I guess what I heard this time is that that's going to condition the way you respond in the future. It's just going to make it more predictable that that's the way you're going to respond and that you're actually kind of cultivating those responses. Is that, does that fit for you? Yes, a hundred percent. Yeah, I think you're, you're exactly right. Yeah. I've been struggling with the aggregates and this was a little point that uh, just popped out just now. That's great. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I had a, went to a, Tibetan teachers talk once and they said, we're always practicing something. So either we're practicing wanting, getting caught in wanting and, you know, reactivity, or we're practicing mindfulness, non-reactivity, non-addiction, um, as Joseph Goldstein put it. So I thought that was powerful too. Sometimes these simple statements can have a big impact, at least on me. Uh, but thank you, Joyce. That's great. Uh, yeah, uh, Nathan B. Uh, yeah, I had a thought about whether animals, I mean, I heard your example of mice and rats getting addicted to sugar or whatever in a lab, <laughs> but I was wondering if like addiction is, is more of a human thing, like animals and nature, you know, yeah, are, <laughs> don't experience addiction. And I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, there. <clears throat> well, there was a study done called Rat Park where they they did. Um, so I don't know if in the wild, I don't know honestly if animals get addicted or not. I mean, I would. I don't know if other people know about that, but I know that in the lab. They've been able, as we talked about, they've been able to, to um, kind of addict rats and things. But then um, they also looked, uh, one study looked at how the rats got addicted. And part of it was that they left the rats isolated and alone with nothing else to do. Cocaine bear, somebody said. Um, I never see that movie, but... Uh, anyway, um, 
that the the rats were kind of alone with nothing else to do but to hit the sugar or the uh, whatever it was, morphine, I think. Um, so, of course, they got addicted, right? And, and again, it's like they were bored. But then when they built them a rat park and they had other rats to play with and they had wheels to jump, run around on and lots of other things to do, they even if they were addicted when they got to rat park, they tended to lose interest in the morphine drip or the sugar and they started doing the other stuff and they kind of um, lost the addiction for the most part. So it did seem there was a natural tendency not to be addicted in the right circumstance. But um, that's about all I can add to this at the moment. Thanks for the question. Thank you. Yeah, I'll have to do more research on that one. Um, all right, well, that's probably a good place to end it. Um, James said to do a little bit of a meta practice and then close. So why don't we just um, take a moment to kind of pause, let the words settle, um, come back, maybe take a few conscious, mindful breaths. And send Metta out. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be healthy and strong. May all beings be safe and protected from harm. May all beings have ease of well-being. And may any merit that arises from our practice here together today, may any merit be for the benefit of all beings everywhere, including ourselves. May all beings be happy, peaceful, and free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.